Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Killer Jeans Stripped Down, where we talk about everything true crime and then some. You'll hear about the cases that are close to us and go behind the scenes of true crime reporting. We'll also talk about case updates and breaking news, as well as speak with some of our friends and colleagues in the world of true crime. Now, we're going to be sharing things we've never been able to talk about because certainly inappropriate to post online. But this is the platform that we can finally share it. What really happens when gathering true crime stories. So let's get to it. Well, joining us today is Sarah Klein, who is an attorney and leading advocate of sexual assault victims. And Sarah has been courageous enough to come forward with her own story of being one of Larry Nassar's first victims. And he is now serving a life sentence. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to dive right in because I think that your journey is incredible. It's inspiring, full of strength. And I was actually recently watching your TED Talk that was um, titled Being Victim 125. And a few things stood out. Not only did I get chill bumps the entire way watching it, but, um, you know, it hurt my heart. It inspired me all at the same time. And then I realized you came forward publicly at a time when you were already a very successful career woman what was that like doing that for you? I mean, and, and how did that come to be? Yeah, that's a great question. So deciding to come forward publicly and to sort of be associated with a high profile child sex abuse case is not an easy decision, as you can imagine. And the sentencing of Larry happened in January of 2018. And the prosecutor reached out to us and said, do any of you want to give a victim impact statement? And only about 30 of us said yes. And that always surprises people because I think the final number was like 256 women who ended up giving statements. Um, So sentencing began on a Tuesday and I was the last person to go on that day. And the reason I said yes originally was chances were Larry was going to prison for life. I knew him for the entirety of my life and the entirety of my childhood. I went to his wedding. He came to my birthday parties. He was a huge, very formative, very important person in my life. And I knew that this was going to be likely the last time I was ever going to get to speak to him. And also the last time I was going to have the opportunity to say what I needed to say, which was, you breached my trust. I know that now. Um, you can't hurt me again. And, you know, what happened? You know, we were all young. I was eight when I met him. He was in his 20s. We all had dreams. My coach, John Geddert, who died by suicide this last February after being charged with 24 counts of child abuse, committed suicide that day, you know, but Back then, we were in small town Michigan in this little gym. We weren't national headlines. We weren't Olympic coaches and Olympic doctors. We were young people with nothing but dreams. And so 
For that sentencing, I asked the prosecutor to be a Jane Doe. I was known, as you said, as victim 125. Um, There was some media in the courtroom the first day, but it wasn't until the second day where people started paying attention. And by the end of that week, our anonymous Olympians came forward and put their faces and their names behind the story. And it became this huge media sensation seen around the world, quite literally. Um, But still, I was just victim 125. I needed that conversation to be intimate between myself and someone I deeply loved. And I needed that closure without cameras in my face. I did allow my voice to be recorded and that victim impact statement is is online somewhere. Um, But by July of that year, I was approached by ESPN asking me to be sort of the spokesperson accepting the ESPY award live on national television, on ABC TV, Um, writing my own speech and delivering my own speech on behalf of the 333 women that had then come forward. Um, And at first I said, no way. Um, because like you said, I had a career. I was an Ivy League graduate. I was a lawyer. I was living my life. I was a new mom. My daughter was, I think, two at the time. Um, and I had a life and I was in my late thirties and I wasn't again, really sort of turned on by this concept of being associated with this for the rest of my life. Um, but when ESPN executive producer said to me, Sarah, this award is not about being a victim of child sex abuse. This award is about courage to stop another child from being harmed. I was like, okay, well, now that you put it that way, I'm in. Um, And, you know, I thought about the legacy I was going to leave for my daughter. And I knew at some point I was going to have to tell her about this. And I thought about how that conversation would be framed and to frame it around the idea of courage was just so lovely to me. So I said yes, and I accepted the award with two of my sister survivors and I wrote my own speech and and there we were. And since then, life has unfolded rapidly and very, very publicly. So that's a long answer to your question. Sarah, you know, you said you said you know the numbers three hundred and thirty women. I mean, that is such a staggering and tragic number. Uh, you know, for you with the abuse starting at eight years old, and then reading headlines, you know that he's being investigated and finally charged. When did those pieces of the puzzle start falling into place for you? Yeah, it's such an important point that I want to make for all other survivors listening. You know, it started at eight years old with grooming and with this trusting, loving relationship. Our coach, John Getter, as I mentioned, was really, quite frankly, the bad cop, sort of the the monster in this story. Larry wasn't. Larry was what we call a good guy predator. He was so kind, so loving. You know, our gym was terrifying. Our coach was a screamer and a yeller and verbally abusive and physically abusive, which was why he ended up being charged. He would break us down 
and then send us back to this treatment room where Larry would say, it's okay, honey, you're going to be great. Just lay down here. I'm going to help you. I'm going to put your body back together. We're going to get you all set. You can do this. You've got this. I'm proud of you. I care about you. Here's some candy. Here's some food because I know you're starving. Um, and let me take care of you. And so we loved him. We revered him. We thought he was just the best. And when you're eight and nine and 10, your brain is not fully formed. I think about my older daughter. She's six years old now. And, and she quite literally does not know how to tie her shoes. She doesn't know. And to think, you know, just two years later, there I am laying face down on a treatment table by myself in a back room, having just been screamed at and sent back there and terrified, you know, for this, for this adult to be so nice and so kind. Um, I understand now looking back how I didn't get it. And then you have years of, of the same old, same old, that's all I knew. And so I equate it sometimes to a cult. Like when you're in the cult, you don't have the the context and and sort of the the space from that situation to be able to see it for what it is. You know, I I talked to an adult um, who went into a cult recently. She was in that Nexium cult for seven or eight years. And she entered as an adult. And, and, you know, so this can happen even when you do have wherewithal. But when you're a child, the things are really stacked against you in terms of being able to see things for what they are. Um, we weren't talking about sex abuse back then. We certainly weren't talking about good guy predators. And so I went about my life and saw Larry for the last time at 25 years old, law school graduate, um, Ivy League, not law school graduate, Ivy League graduate from undergrad, first year law student. I see Larry, we go to lunch, we talk about old times, and then we go back to Michigan State Sports Medicine, and he abuses me again. And again, I'm not thinking anything sexual. I'm thinking this is literally medical treatment. He's helping me. Um, I didn't put the pieces together until the story came out in Indianapolis Star newspaper article in 2016. My teammate sent me the article. I saw the headline. I didn't even open it. And I'm like, holy crap. Um, and for me, I got it instantly. It made sense to me. It, all of a sudden, sort of, I, I was a mom at that point, a new mom. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my gosh. Um and, and I can go into a lot of detail, but I, I, I won't about how in those intervening years in my 20s and early 30s, my life was just in a slow decline because I was feeling deep down the after effects of child sexual trauma, but I, I didn't have it in, in my conscious mind. My body knew, my psyche knew. I was the last to know. My logical brain was the last to know because my logical brain was saying, he loves you. You love him. No problem here. You know, nothing to see here. If anything, I would have said to you, 
Don Getter screwed me up and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm struggling and have a hard time leaving my house and have all these physical manifestations of abuse, um, like endometriosis and things like that, anxiety, depression, et cetera. So when, when that article came out, I'm like, Oh, I got it. Um, my teammates, a lot of them didn't get it. Um, and their psyches were still fighting the fact that the paradigm of, of their whole life was about to explode. And so they went to Larry's side, they comforted him, they defended him. Um, and it wasn't until the 37,000 images of child pornography were recovered from Larry's hard drive that their tune changed and people actually started to believe us. A few things stand out. One is you said he was in his 20s when it started with you at eight, which means he had that, um, you know, perverted mind at a very young age. And mm-hmm. then also you you have a doctor and you have a coach. Do you think they knew that, that they were both doing it? Do you think that it's just a very prevalent, you know, unspoken abuse taking place in that industry? Or do you think they both knew that each other were abusing children? Yes. In fact, I'm pretty much sure of it um, because John Getter abused children openly in the gym. There was no secret there. Everybody, I mean, from the owners to the parents would see it. You know, my my parents were never there because they worked and had another kid to run around. Um, but oh yeah, that was totally open. Everybody knew it. Every coach, you know, in our entire region knew it. Um, that was his reputation and he was a little bit proud of it. Um, being that tough, you know, producing winners at at at, you know, all costs. Um, in terms of John Getter, my coach, knowing about Larry sexually abusing kids, um, Larry was set up in this back room of the gym that was inaccessible by parents without having to walk over the floor exercise where kids are tumbling, through the beam area where kids are tumbling, past the vault area where kids are tumbling, into this back room. Um, and I think that was intentionally. There were no windows in the room and Larry was back there by himself with a treatment table, which, which looked like a massage table. So that was the setup. And John Getter used to walk in, see us, you know, see me. And I can only speak from my own experience, but I I witnessed him doing this with other kids too, you know, half naked laying face down with a towel over our naked bottoms and say, Klein, you're up on vault get out here. Right. And so if he, if he didn't know, you know, the, the, the technicalities of how Larry was abusing us. Okay. I think that's still a stretch, but to see a naked child face down on a treatment table with a grown man in a room by themselves, you tell me he didn't know what was going on. You know what I mean? And I think it was sort of a, I'll scratch your back. If you scratch mine and and listen, it worked. They both made it out of small town Lansing, Michigan to the Olympics. Larry went to the Olympics four times as the head team doctor of Team USA, women's gymnastics, most popular sport in the Summer Olympics and the most financially profitable. And John Gennert was the head 2012 Olympic gold medal 
women's gymnastics coach of the Fierce Five, Allie Raisman, Jordan Weaver, Gabby Douglas, Kyla Ross, um, and Michaela Maroney. And so it worked to a certain extent until it didn't work. And they both ended up charged, um, criminally charged. But that's how these people get away with this stuff for decades is they help each other for self-serving purposes. So you look at a case like Epstein, you look at a case like Weinstein, you look at these high-profile cases where people, and even non-high-profile cases, where predators are able to get away with this stuff for decades and people go, well, how? You know, you mean to tell me nobody knew? No, everybody knew. And the adults in positions of authority did nothing for some purpose, whether it be their own reputation, their own fear, their own psyche denying what they knew to be true. Mostly we see it being about brand, reputation, money, sort of self-serving career gain, not wanting to upset the apple cart. And that's how we keep seeing these cases in the news over and over and over again. I joke with my clients and it's not funny, but it sort of is. It's like a new client calls me up and tells me their story. Like it's the first time I've heard it. And I'm like, same, same set of facts, different town, different God-like figure. So one of my cases is a pediatrician pedophile in no man's land, central Pennsylvania. He abused kids for 40 years. And he pled guilty and is in prison the rest of his life and probably abused thousands upon thousands of kids. We know of hundreds, Um, you know, on the school board, just like Larry, big churchgoer, just like Larry, pillar of the community, just like Larry. Everybody loved him, just like Larry. Right. It's the same profile. And so everybody has them up on this pedestal so that when they do sexually abuse the child, the child's very confused. And when the child comes forward, the adults around that child say, no way, they would never do that. They would never hurt a fly. My mother to this day says, Larry is the person you you would drop your kids off with. He was that kind, that loving, that trustworthy. And then they groom your whole family. They're not just grooming you. You know, Larry was a a figure in my family that we loved and trusted. And so I hope some of these things, um, you know, sort of stand out as themes for people to look for in their own communities, because I hate to say in the work that I do, this is happening in your community. I don't care who you are, where you live, socioeconomic standing of your community, private school, public, it doesn't matter. It's happening in your community. And so really, really take a look at these themes and remember the concept of a good guy predator. Hey, KG listeners, how many of you have tried CBD products? Well, Kelly and I have many of them, and we have stumbled upon a line called CBDX that has cracked the code of the CBD calm and the kick of THC. And here's how. By using a federally legal form of THC, and take it from us, you will definitely feel it. I swear by the vape cartridges, and my husband just loves the gummies. Ah, I do the gummies too, and uh, it actually is one of their strongest products. 
and it hit me in all the right ways. <laughs> That's because they use Delta 8 THC. Now, it will show up on a drug test, so be aware. And because of its strength, don't drive or operate heavy machinery. The most convenient part about CBDX for me is there's just no hassle of going to dispensaries and then paying those taxes. And if it's not legal where you live, then it's just a no-brainer because, uh, you know, it's legal delivery service straight to you. Now you can get 20% off and a free gift by going to CBDX.com and use the code word KILLER. Sarah, you kind of, you talked about how he came to your birthday party. You know, your mom (laughs) drop you off with him and be, feel safe for hours. So when you found out what him and, and Getter were doing, it had to, must've felt like a wolf in sheep's clothing the entire time. Right. So how did you work through the process of, of realizing that man that, you know, you and your family had trusted for so many years was the devil? Yeah. That that's a great question, and it's something I've worked very hard on in therapy, trying to reconcile. Um, for Getter, it was easier. He was a bad, mean, scary person, and, and so for me to kind of say, "Yeah, that was child abuse," I think that I, I always knew, even when I was little. Like what he does isn't normal. Um, and, and, but he must love me because he's trying to help me get better and, you know, whatever, but, but to see him for what he was, was much easier. Larry, it's been much harder. And I think it's still a journey and people get confused when I say that, but what I had to accept is that there can be really good qualities about somebody and I can still hang on to some of those good memories and they can be evil serial pedophiles and those two things can coexist at the same time and it doesn't have to be black and white and when my therapist said to me it doesn't have to be black and white you can still hang on to some of the 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 good stuff I'm like oh phew um because otherwise I would I would have to somehow digest that just everything about my judgment was wrong and off and, and it wasn't, there were some reasons that I still thought he was a good person after, you know, after going into treatment and coming out, right? Like I, there had to have been those redeeming qualities. And and that's what's so psychologically complex about a good guy predator is it's like a mind F, you know, they, 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 they suck you in and use you and then spit you back out. And the psyche has to say, okay, you know, how do I ever trust myself again? How do I ever know, you know, if people are good or evil or what? And to be able to say to myself, okay, it wasn't all crazy. There were some, some real things there. And that doesn't say anything about Larry. I'm not defending him and saying he was a great guy. I'm saying that says something about me and my own judgment that I could recognize kindness in another person when it was there, or I could recognize warmth in another person when it was there, but I can also recognize that warmth was being used to groom me and use me and, and hurt me. Um, it's a complex, 
it's a complex thing. And, and I think that brings me to the topic of healing, which it's not a straight line. And that sounds cliche, but man, oh man, you know, I still have those days of of struggle. And, and I'm sure you guys have seen in the news, we recently settled our case with USA Gymnastics and the United States Olympic Committee after what, five years in litigation. Um, I was the chair of the Survivors Committee that has been working on that for five years and living it and breathing it. Um, it's really traumatizing. It's really traumatizing as recently as last month. Um, you know, having to face the enablers who still to this day, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Olympic Committee still to this day say to those Olympians, yes, you were 15 years old in a foreign country away from your parents competing on behalf of Team USA and, and we were in charge of your food and your housing and getting you from point A to point B but we had no duty to keep you safe from Larry Nasser. <laughs> and it's just like, you're like, what? Um, so it's traumatizing and re-traumatizing and re-traumatizing. And so healing, healing has been an interesting thing. And I would say to any survivor listening, and this sounds cliche too, but you have to be gentle with it. And you have to say, you know, because I'm crying, today or I'm shaking today or making bad decisions or drinking or, you know, whatever it is, tomorrow I get a chance to, to, to be gentle with myself and, and try to nurture myself back to that path of forward movement. Um, I haven't been perfect at it. My sister survivors certainly haven't been perfect at it. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of those high profile names that you guys see in the news all the time they're still little girls you know they might be in their 20s now um but when you're raised in in the sport of gymnastics you almost don't have a childhood and so they're getting to to figure out their senses of self now for the first time they're little girls dealing with a lifetime of trauma and unpacking that so healing healing i have not <laughs> figured out. I actually see that emotional confliction with a lot of the family members I've talked to of killers where they accept what their family member loved one has done, the horrific things they've, they've done to society and people, but they still have that love and own their own experiences of, um, something completely separate from that darkness and, and, and associated with guilt. And, and I get being torn emotionally when you have some good experiences and then it is overshadowed by darkness. And what's so powerful about you is your vulnerability. I mean, not only being an advocate and an attorney now, but your vulnerability in sharing your story, which the most powerful thing that we have in society is sharing and connecting with others. Right. And I see a lot of victims of sexual assault and rape that aren't ready to come forward like you did. And I have, I actually have friends that were raped, um, from dating apps and they come to me and I'm, you know, I'm ready to kick down doors and help them fight, but they're not ready to speak up and come forward, which is frustrating for me, but it didn't happen to me. And I'm sure you come across, you know, dozens and dozens of victims like that. What do you say to the women that don't have the courage yet? They want it, but they don't have it and don't know if they ever will. 
man, it's it's such a hard thing because something like a rape, any sexual trauma is terrifying. And so, yes, there there can be you know backlash when when survivors come forward. And I think as a society, we're getting better about that. But there's still backlash. There's still um, you know sort of victim shaming and slut shaming and 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 that kind of thing around coming forward but there's also that that sort of paralyzation that occurs where it can feel like a true uphill battle and listen our criminal system is wildly flawed when it comes to dealing with with survivors the laws aren't great um, we're working on that. The laws aren't great. The number of cases that are able to be prosecuted, that the prosecutors actually take, the percentages are low. So it's an uphill battle, which can feel very insurmountable when you're traumatized um, and when you're paralyzed. And so I would say to them, all in due time, you know, taking care of yourself first is the most important thing, getting into therapy, talking to other survivors, not holding that burden alone. Whether you talk to law enforcement or not, or lawyers or not, there there will come a time to, to, to have to make that decision based on the laws in your state, based on statutes of limitations, right? So eventually you're strong-armed into having to make that choice. I'm also working on getting statutes changed because in my view, there should be no statute of limitations when it comes to, to sexual trauma, especially sexual trauma of a child. Um, and, and we're getting better at that too, but still not great. Um, but so, so that timeline sort of forced on you, but otherwise, all in due time, the most important thing is to not carry that burden alone and to not believe that there's anything wrong with you or that you did anything to deserve this. I always tell my clients when they call me and tell me their stories, many of whom are telling the story for the first time, I tell them, I believe you. You are not alone anymore and you did not deserve this. You did nothing to deserve this. And a lot of times they burst into tears because they've either been really hard on themselves or they believe society is going to judge them or nobody has ever said those words to them before. And so I think that's the most important thing. Come forward if and when you're ready, understanding that laws do impose deadlines, unfortunately, about when you come forward and but otherwise don't carry this burden by yourself. Hey, Kelly, what level are you on right now for June's journey? I am on, get this, level 234. And I am crushing it and I am loving it. 
Yeah, that's that's insane. Okay, I definitely need to catch up. You're way ahead of me, and I will because it is the ultimate whodunit, playing June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries, which, you know, has me hooked. Well, yeah, and that's absolutely why I love it, too. It's right up our alley. And the game is aesthetically gorgeous because it's set in the Roaring Twenties, which, as you know, is an era that I absolutely love. And you get to use your observation skills and problem solving with vivid selections. And it's so lifelike in some of the scenes. So I plan to keep going until I crack all of the cases of June's journey because the game relaxes me, but also challenges me at the same time. Get ready to awaken your inner detective. It's what we do naturally, and I'm still playing it. That's how much I love it. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Sarah, so Nasser was sentenced in 2017 to 60 years in a federal prison. And then additionally in 2018, he was sentenced to 175 years uh, in Michigan State Prison. You know, when we talk about true crime, we talk about the word justice a lot. Do you think that with those sentences, justice has been served for Nasser? And part two of the question is, do you think that you were robbed of justice by John Getter committing suicide? Yeah. So in terms of Nasser as a, as a, as a single actor, yes, I believe justice was served because I know he can never hurt another kid. And, and that's, that was what justice looked like, at least for me, in terms of Nasser as a lone actor. In terms of USA Gymnastics and Michigan State and the Olympic Committee, no, they've never taken responsibility. They've written big, fat checks, which are great because it gives survivors access to resources, you know, inpatient facilities, eating disorder clinics, you know, all of that stuff that they're going to need literally for the rest of their lives. So that's great. But have they ever said this happened on our watch and we are devastated because we did something to enable him? No. They said, we're sorry for the survivors. This should never happen. They've never taken responsibility, but that's because they've wanted to avoid legal liability. So if they actually took responsibility, they saw that as, oh, we just have to pay more money. And they cared about money more than we cared about survivors. So I don't think there's ever going to be justice there. I also feel like many of the same people in charge are still in charge. You know, Simone Biles tweets about that all the time, as does Allie Raisman. You know, here's this person who knew, here's this person who hurt us. They still have their jobs. They still represent um, USA Gymnastics. And I think a big part of what happened to Simone at the Olympics is related to all of this. In fact, I know that because she's a friend and we've had those conversations. Um, In terms of being robbed with John Getter, you know, you never want somebody to, to, to lose their life. I don't wish that upon anybody or his family, kids, grandkids, et cetera. Um, I do wish he had to sit there and suffer. I do feel like we were robbed in some way. You know, he can never hurt another child again. I love that fact. Um, I do believe that he killed himself because he knew what he had done all those decades. All he ever did was hurt kids. All he ever did for decades was break our arms, step on our toes, scream at us, spit at us. You know, he wiped my 
my face in my own vomit when I was 12 or 10 or something in the, like he was a bad guy and he knew he was a bad guy. And so he killed himself instead of facing the music. Um, but I also believe he was the ultimate arrogant prick narcissist above the law jerk. You know, he thought, you know, he, he walked on water and, and the rest of the world needed to, to kiss his feet. And so in that sense, I would have loved to see him in cuffs. I would have loved. I kept saying, you know, because it took a while to get a, a, an actual attorney general in Michigan that was going to just not let it go. We got this fabulous female att attorney general named Dana Nessel. She's a hoot. And, and she's like, I'm not letting this go. This guy's a bad guy. We've had enough report. We're going to figure it out. And so they actually got really creative and brought him up on trafficking charges. Like they, they worked hard to get him charged and and so i always said i waited year after year and the nasa stuff came and went and it's like but well, when's getter gonna get charged and it took years and he got charged and it, it just felt so good that morning i remember doing the morning shows um and and saying today's the day you know we're vindicated this is awesome and then literally i'm sitting at lunch with my coworkers, and one of them got a text and it was like getter's dead you know hours later that sucked it was really really hard because he did not face face us he did not face us um he took the arrogant narcissistic way out but it's true to form looking back i shouldn't be surprised but i do feel like in that sense, I would have loved that. On the other hand, what matters most is he can't hurt anybody else. You talk about uh, good predators, bad predators, and the differences of them. And in, in, in encountering some of the, the worst child predators of our time that we've seen with the hundreds of victims, and now being a lawyer who does this as a profession and also continuing to see the patterns, um, what stands out to you? Is there a pattern? In, in retrospect, to tell people about, to look out for? Um, and is it easier for high-profile predators? Yes, I think it's easier for high-profile predators because they have built-in protection by those adults around them who revere them um, or whose jobs and livelihoods are so tied to them that, you know, they're they're financial futures rely on sweeping things under the rug. Like I think we saw a lot of that with Weinstein, Epstein, obviously, even Woody Allen, when they, when they have financial means to hire PR machines um, and they're going to pay them boatloads of money to spin things. Um, it's definitely, and to hide things. I mean, Epstein literally bought off, you know, U.S. attorneys down in Florida, um, at, you know, allegedly, I should add. Um, but yeah, they could buy their way out of things and they can intimidate their way out of things. And so, yes to that. Um, in terms of things to look out for, this is going to be, you know, interesting for people to hear, but walk into your kid's school, walk into the gymnastics studio, walk into the football practice. Who's the most popular coach? Who's the one staying after with your kid? Who's the one offering your kid a, drive, a ride home after practice? Who's the, the one that says, your kid has a lot of talent. I'm really proud of them. I want to work with them one-on-one. -on -one. 
who's the most popular teacher in your kid's school? The one that runs the, all the clubs after school, that's involved with the kids, that's driving them places, that's taking them on the field trips. Who's the church leader, the, you know, the popular this, the popular, that's the one to look out for. And I, I really am conflicted when I say that, because of course we, we want to incentivize great teachers and great coaches to be involved with kids. But, you know, I don't need to be driving my six-year-old, six-year-old friends around alone, period. Right. So whenever she goes on a play date, I go too. I, I really don't drop her off because all it takes is turning your head for one second and the older brother or the older sister or whatever, and something happens. Or, you know, think about it in terms of adults protecting themselves, right? You, you don't want to be in a situation where a kid says something because you put yourself in a situation where you are alone with someone else's child. We need that system of checks and balances. And we don't want to have to put the burden on the child to protect themselves. Obviously, we want to give the child all the tools. So using proper terms for anatomy in a child. Devastating anecdote. Um, this is real. Um, a child went to school, a little girl, elementary school, and she said to her teacher multiple times over multiple months, my daddy's eating my cookie. My daddy ate my cookie last night. And the teacher completely missed it. And it was because the child was taught that the proper or that the word they use in their home for vagina is cookie. And so the child was attempting to disclose, attempting to disclose. Finally, they caught on, but that was months later after the child had been abused, God knows how many more times. So, you know, my six-year-old knows the word vagina like she knows the word elbow. Not teaching our kids to, to be stigmatized about, you know, to have some stigma around their bodies or their sexual organs. Um, super important. But the burden shouldn't be on the kid. And, and, you know, thankfully that elementary child kept attempting to disclose. But statistically, you disclose once or twice to adult, the adults around you and they don't do anything or believe you. They don't keep trying. They get the message that that doesn't matter. And, and this girl was trying to say what was happening to her. And so we as adults have a duty to not put our kids or the kids around us in positions of this kind of stuff ever even having the chance to get life. If your kid never rides around alone with their coach, your co the coach is never going to be able to abuse your kid. But likewise, I'm not going to drive somebody else's kid around. I know I'm not a perpetrator. I know all the signs. I know everything about this topic. Um, I'm the safest person on the planet. But I'm not going to put myself in that position or put the child in that position of being alone with an adult that's not their mommy or daddy. <laughs> I'm just not doing it. And, and so I think you nailed it. And I and not only am I learning a lot, but, you know, because I'm not a parent just yet, but that is very practical day to day down to, um, you know, the little things that people don't even think about. I mean, the, the story with the cookie and the anatomy of the child is traumatizing in the way you describe how to just, you know, properly describe a child's body to them. That is a small, small safeguard. 
as they grow older in life, you know, and, and I don't know, I know that it's tough to say, be on a lookout for people that are too nice and too cozy into a talented kid, but that's how society has become. And we have to be vigilant and alert. And I think that is the best advice. I've never heard advice like that. It's very unique. And I think it's powerful and it needs to be done across the board. I think it needs to be taught in, in schools. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think about what kind of sex education or, you know, conversations like this I had in school, it was like, you start your period when you're 12 or 13 or whatever, like, you know, here's how to use a tampon. It was, it was so not geared towards safety. And it doesn't need to be taught from a perspective of fear. I'm not going to instill fear in my child. She doesn't deserve to live like that. I'm going to instill confidence in my child. I'm going to talk to my child. I'm going to teach her that what she says matters. I've taught her that we don't have any secrets. Um, And so we differentiated between surprise and secret. Those are two different things. And she knows we don't keep secrets in this house. And so if her friends at school say, hey, you know, it's a secret that we're going to play this game or do this, she'll always come home and tell me, mommy, so-and-so said secret. Here's what she said. You know, it's just those little things, but it's empowering our kids. It's safeguarding, you know, teaching those little tips and tricks that safeguard. And it's it, it, we don't have to necessarily walk around thinking the world is a bad, a a bad place out to get us. And I'll say like everything I've been through 17 years of basically daily abuse. I'm the most optimistic person you're ever going to meet. I see the the glass full. I, I really believe in the goodness and kindness of others. Um, and I've seen it over and over and over again, but in order to, have all the goodness and kindness. We just have to do our parts in keeping the world as safe as possible. And that's having these tough conversations like you guys are doing on your show. It's, it's, it's talking about this so that there is no stigma attached. I can't tell you, you know, I walked into my daughter's Christmas school choir concert and two moms that I don't even know, I've like seen a little bit, but have never met, walked up to me crying, disclosing their stories. And it's like, cool, good. I love that. I don't look at you any different. I'm so sorry for what you went through. You know, let's talk about it. Let's raise our hands. Let's say that happened to me too. Um, and, And so it becomes normalized so that predators out there realize we're not a afraid of you. And if you hurt us or hurt a child, we will do something about it. And if we can all sort of approach life from that empowered place, as opposed to that fearful place, or even more prevalent, putting our head in the sands and not believing that this is going to happen in our community or our schools, we can leave the world safer than how we found it. I deeply believe that. And I could not listen to the stories that I listened to day in and day out if I did not really believe that in my heart of hearts. Well, Sarah, I think this is one of the most important episodes we've we've done on Killer Jeans Stripped Down. And I really hope everybody takes what you said and the message to heart. So thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your bravery. I was just thinking that, Kelly. It's an episode every parent needs to hear. You know, everyone needs to listen to. And you give me goosebumps every time you talk because you hit home so hard and I'm so grateful that you exist in the society and you're fighting for all of us and the victims. Thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. I have two little girls and I 
figured if I don't do it, I don't know who else will. So I will keep doing it and I will always say yes and I will keep showing up. And I appreciate you guys for tackling this difficult topic. Thanks everyone for listening. Follow Killer Jeans on Facebook and on Instagram. It's at Killer Jeans, the podcast. Also, be sure to like and subscribe to Killer Jeans on Podcast One, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, need some new wardrobe pieces for 2022? We've got you covered. Check out our line of exclusive Killer Jeans branded apparel and accessories only available at shop.podcastone.com. Because we all have killer genes. Hi, I'm Caitlin Van Maul, host of I Survived. If you enjoy I Survived, we are excited to announce a new launch. Starting November 15th, we'll be reposting our classic episodes from season one of I Survived. We hope to reach a whole new audience with these important stories of survival. And for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, we think these powerful episodes warrant another listen. Starting November 15th, look out for those episodes and more news from I Survived.